We're back for the second episode of the MA Podcast, an hourish-long magazine show dedicated to the pub trade. I'm The Morning Advertiser's managing editor, Nicholas Robinson, and I'm also joined by our senior reporter, Nikki Thatcher. Also on the show this month, we'll hear from Warner's Gin founder, Tom Warner, who talks about the future of the category. I visit this year's winner of the Best Food Pub for Great British Pub Awards, The Dog at Wingham, which was also celebrating its birthday. Our editor, Ed Beddington, sits down with Peach Pub's boss, Hamish Stoddart, to talk growth strategy. And we launch our five-minute legal surgery with pub trade law specialists, Popleston Allen. But first, I'm joined in the studio by our senior reporter, Nikki Thatcher, to talk all things pub trade news. Nikki, what have our readers been interested in since our last podcast? So since the last podcast, one big topic within our readers is the Michelin-starred pubs. Now, the 2020 edition of the Michelin Guide was released last month and it awarded two new pubs Michelin stars, making that 19 Michelin-starred pubs in total. So no pubs that were on the list last year have lost their stars? No, that's right. And if anything, uh, yeah, two more gained them, so it's increasing. And which pubs were those? They were the Angel in Hetton in North Yorkshire and the Royal Oak in Watcote, Shipston-on-Stour, Warwickshire. Now, an interesting fact about the Angel in Hetton, it's appeared on our Estradam Top 50 Gastropubs list over the years. Um, it popped back on again this year. Um, they claim they are the first gastropub in the UK. Obviously, the Eagle in uh, Farringdon also claims for that title. That is interesting, as London has a lot of pubs that serve great food, which it has become quite iconic for, whereas up north seems to be emerging with a lot of really great food operators now, and actually quite a lot of our of the Australia Dam Top 50 Gastro pubs on the list are from the northern quarters. That is true. Um, and also in London, surprisingly, there's only one gastro pub with a Michelin star, and that's the Howard Arms. Head chef Sally Abain managed to maintain that this year as well, which is great news for her. Um, so what else is going on? I, I see there's been a fair few acquisitions this month as well. Do you want to kick off with uh, some of those? Yeah, that's right. There's been three in the past month or so, starting off with Fuller's. Fuller's acquired a collection of pub and hotel sites from a business called the Cotswold Inns and Hotels. This included seven freehold country inns and hotels, along with eight staff cottages and two leasehold bars in the centre of Birmingham. Fuller's itself already has a strong reputation for having pubs with rooms, and it seems that it's looking to grow that area of the business. That's obviously quite interesting because um, they sold their brewery arm to Asahi and all of their beer brands um, and all of their drinks brands, in fact, actually, um, a few months back, just to focus specifically on uh, their managed pub portfolio. What else has been sold? So following this, um, the news about Green King being uh, taken on by a Hong Kong company in a £2.7 billion deal, that deal was completed recently, uh, actually at the end of October. So it means that uh, Hong Kong's richest man, Lee Ka Shing, will become the owner of, of one of the UK's largest pub estates. That is uh, obviously big news for the trade. Um, a big bruco um, like Green King being sold um, to a, a, an overseas investor. I was sat with Green King's new boss uh, recently at dinner with UK Hospitality and um, he was telling me, well obviously he couldn't tell me an awful lot about the deal, um, but we're expecting big things from Green King in the future once the sale goes through. So what else has been sold? So thirdly, 
um, was just a couple of weeks ago. Marston sold 137 of their pubs to Admiral. The majority of them were part of Marston's managed arm, um, with a few were from the least tenanted area of the business. And you had a conversation with Admiral Boss as well, didn't you? Chris Jousey recently. I did, yep. I spoke to him to find out what Admiral's plans were with the new pubs and how it would impact licensees, both current and um, about to become Admiral licensees. He also outlines the plans for the Admiral business altogether over the next two to three years, and they're looking to expand up to about 1,500 to 2,000 sites in total, which is almost doubling their current estate as they've got just over 1,000 now, inclusive of the 137 pubs they've acquired from Marston's and the 150 that they acquired from Star Pubs and Bars last month. So did he assure current licensees and tenants that things would be good? He did. He assured me that they were recruiting more uh, business development managers to be able to take on the new licensees. And he went into detail with me about how they really are are keen to support both current and and oncoming licensees by increasing their number of um, business development managers. So lots of sales in the past few weeks then? Absolutely, yeah. It seemed to me that headlines of, of two to three years ago, both with us and in the national newspapers, were a lot about the negative side of pub closures. These days it seems to be more about acquisitions, which can only be a good thing for the sector. Uh, especially, yeah, especially if we've got foreign investors who want to invest in the, in the sector and see, obviously, benefit financially to them in doing that. So we're coming up for a general election. What is the latest on that in the pub world? Yeah, so Scottish operator and brewer Brewdog has announced that it will be giving out free pints of its flagship beer, Punk IPA, this year to people who are voting in the general election coming up on the 12th of December. Actually, they have said it will mean that people who vote will have to bring their polling cards to Brewdog Bars, and um, upon receipt of that, they will be given a free pint of Punk IPA. Good news all round. Um, okay, so thanks for the update there, Nikki. You're going to be sticking around to discuss some of our features on the podcast today. Um, but next, there is no denying gin has captured the nation's attention. And while the naysayers have repeatedly predicted its decline, we're yet to see that happen. Earlier, I met the founder of Warner's Gin to find out what he thinks the future looks like for the category. Britain's love of gin knows no ends, it would seem, but in an increasingly overcrowded market, only the brands with a strong identity are able to gain the cut-through needed to sustain a strong business. The husband and wife team, Tom and Tina Warner, behind Warner's Gin, however, have seen their brand grow considerably in recent years. Tom, thanks for taking some time out to speak with us today. Um, the last time we saw each other, Warner's had a pretty impressive uh, bar area at Chelsea Flower Show. Um, what's been going on? Uh, yeah, well, that nearly killed everyone in the team, I think. Uh, massive undertaking because we did a show garden and the big bar activation and distilled live in the VIP area. Highest grossing bar on site for, for Chelsea this year, which is very exciting for us as a brand. Um, bit of a roller coaster year. We had the brand sort of name tweak, we then had the pack refresh as well. Chelsea was monumental, I think. Layering all those on top of day-to-day business within the team has been very stressful. Um, but as you know yourself, very competitive category. If you are not running at a million miles an hour, you are being left behind at the moment. So um, I've got an old saying that I say to everyone that joins the business that uh, you have to be very careful when you join Warners because you can literally throw the kitchen sink at it and it will laugh at you and still ask for more whilst you're rocking and crying on the floor. So. 
it's fast paced, it's gin at the moment, we know the stratospheric growth that's been in the category uh, and we know now how competitive it's, uh, it's become, really felt that crystallised from sort of last September um, and uh, it's tougher than ever, it's more exciting than ever um, but it is definitely becoming more combative than it's ever been as well. Yeah, and we've actually talked about your view of the, the gin category and, and specifically the words craft gin. Yeah. What's, what's your take on, on that area? Uh, unfortunately, um, craft is now, it's an overused and abused term. Uh, it's very easy to sound sanctimonious at this point. Um, but I think craft gin was really, it was, it was this magical, independent, entrepreneurial spirit that came in to distilling in general. Because really, gin is the category that's really... Uh, uh, been the catalyst for independent craft distilling in the UK and now other people have used that for cash flow and there's lots of other products starting to come through but craft was meant to be this exciting entrepreneurial high quality uh, a focus on process uh, ingredients and I think what we're seeing now is some of the brands that are starting to win in the category use exactly the same language but probably not the ethos behind those products that are in most Smaller distillers, small doesn't mean good either, I think is another thing to say that there is this instant sort of positioning that if you only make a small amount of it, the quality's fantastic. And there's a lot of bad distillate in the category as well. So that could give craft an even worse name uh, if we're not careful. But for us, we're not a craft gin brand anymore. We're a graft gin brand. So it's the amount of effort that goes into every single bottle in terms of ingredients, their sourcing, the process we use and the equipment we use on the farm. Yeah, and you coined that term graft gin. I'm sorry, it sounds better in a northern accent. <laughs> yeah, graft. Hard yeah. Um, what does that mean then, graft gin? Uh, I think it, it, it is the, it's the ethos of the brand. I mean, we're farm born as a business. Farmers have a certain ethos when it comes to, to work, and that is you get up and you work as hard as you can every single day, which is what we've brought to the business. Um, it is about the ingredients we use. Everything is natural, as nature intended. You know, flavoured gin is the fastest growing part of the gin category right now. We're kind of the guys that started that for all the right reasons. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is a lot of synthetic flavourings. And actually, gins that aren't even distilled as gins. You know, everything we do starts as a London dry. Then we are using materials as Mother Nature intended, post-distillation, to add a different flavour profile to the products. What you're seeing coming through now with most flavoured gins in the category is flavourings, ethanol, sugar and water, and that's how it's being bottled. Which is not what people are buying into or want to buy into when they see the word craft or handcrafted on a bottle. Unfortunately, we're starting, well, not more and more, it's inundated now. The whole, uh, the whole industry is inundated with products using gin and craft as buzzwords to captivate consumers into buying their products. Um, so the naysayers will, um, will say the gin bubble is about to burst. They've been saying this for the past four or five years. Um, yeah. We've yet to see it. It's still growing. Why is it not burst yet? What's stopping it? Um, I'm unsure as whether there's been, and I mean, you could go back for years, but has there ever been a spirit that has grown this quickly and had this many new producers come into it in such a compressed timeline? I'm not sure that there has been. And that, that level of um, increased authenticity in theory, you know, small producers coming in has almost validated the entire category and it's enabled what's going on at the moment with a lot of people dining out on that. Um, but I think it's a huge amount of excitement that's been pulled in by this innovation 
Um, I think gin's really accessible as a spirit. I think dark spirits, they, they, they are uh, more of an acquired taste than gin. Gin's very open. There's not a sophisticated sort of, with a whiskey, some people are almost too scared to, to almost start to comment on a whiskey because there's almost a, a qualification required before you can start talking about it with authority. Whereas with gin, I like it or I don't like it. So it's accessible. More people have got into it. It's been very exciting. That's what's driven it. But I think everybody in the industry will admit that now that sort of vertical growth that there was in the category has slowed. Um, I think we're going to be into single digit figures growth for the next few years, which in a category that's tripled is still, I mean, even if the category grows at 8% now, it's probably more than it grew in 2015 at 30%. So still quite a lot of growth. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of that growth is being absorbed now by the big book. They've won anyway in this situation because they have the distribution. But I think a lot of the products they're now release, uh, releasing onto the category are stifling all of the hopes and dreams of these this young sort of bur burgeoning sort of independent distillers movement that there was uh, and the big boys have got their ball back in a way which is sad uh, and hopefully doesn't stifle creativity so yeah it's slowing it's still going to grow um, but I think the opportunity for the independent guys now is diminishing and becoming harder which uh, which is sad really Let's just go back to the, the flavour um, points a little further, because your gins, like you said, you, you make them with real ingredients. It's not it's not a gin liqueur, it's real gin with uh, rhubarb in it or raspberry. Um, yep. And there's a story behind everything usually. Yeah. Gin liqueurs were really big at one point, but they've kind of faded off. Yeah. What's What do you think is behind the consumer? The innovation within the category outgrew education. So gin consumers, I don't think gin consumers understood. I mean, Guy, people in the industry, we, you know, we, we're over-intellectual about all products and how we analyse them and think about them. I think Joe Soap in the street doesn't really understand the difference. They just see gin on a bottle. They don't understand what the cure means. Do they pay attention to ABV? Not many people do. So I think what happened with the cures with retailers, especially in the off-trade and in the on-trade, realised that they could put a product on a menu or on a shelf, charge you know, slightly less than a normal gin, for it, but actually make a huge amount of additional margin. Um, so they exploded because people thought they were cheap and accessible. They were quicker with flavors than a lot of people were. I think they were indiscriminate with the ingredients that they used. Um, and that's been their demise in a way because it, they were just sugar bombs full of synthetic flavorings. Um, I think as a graft producer or as, a, or as an independent producer that's focused on quality, you always hope that people will come on the quality escalator. So that may be the gateway drug that got them into the category, but once they're there, they start experimenting, realizing that there's better quality products on offer, and will then move up to the to the, to the stuff that's made the way we make ours. Yeah, I mean, it's like any other category, isn't it? The cider category, there's lots of fruit yeah. ciders, and, and they hope that people will go into the, the harder stuff, the, the more complex flavors, yeah. get with wine, starting rosé, sweet rosé, and move into different areas of wine. Um, so the bubble, isn't going to burst in, in your view it's going to grow slower yeah but what are distillers and producers like warner's doing to make sure that that interest is still there so i, I touched on it it's, it's education uh, and i think that is because the category grew so much quicker than people's knowledge 
it's up to us now. I mean, the guys that are pulling the wool over people's eyes are going to keep their mouths shut in this situation. It's actually up to the guys that are doing it the right way to shout the loudest now, which is difficult because we don't have the bank balances uh, uh, of the big operations. Um, but I think uh, persistent, sticking to messaging, pushing that message on, or not pushing, but educating the consumer, telling them the difference between the certain gins is important. But the reality is that the bubble may have slowed in its growth. What's happening now, because that slowed, the only way to grow is actually to throw your elbows. And I think you're starting to see a bit more aggression within the category. And it will be the brands, because let's face it, it's dominated by products at the moment. It'll be the businesses that create brands with an emotional attachment or connection with the consumer that will start to succeed. And that will be through education, that will be through all the touch points of classic marketing, uh, through the line campaigns. They're the brands that are going to be still standing because gin may start to shrink in three to five years from now. The reality is it's still massive, but to main, if you're not growing, you're dying is the reality. And to keep growing at the moment means you have to steal share from other people. Yeah. So we've got a, a nice bottle of gin on the table in front of us. I don't think I've seen this we one do. before. Yeah, it's our raspberry gin. Um, this was a product that we, uh, we've been making for about three years. We actually made it in very small batches to start with for a beer festival in the village. Uh, we then did it at um, uh, the big festival over in Gloucester as a limited edition for that. And uh, the, the reaction to it was phenomenal. Um, we didn't want to launch another, let's put it in inverted commas, but pink gin. You know, our rhubarb was pro pretty much the first pink gin at scale in the UK. Pink is not a, a flavour. I just need to point that out for everyone. You know, it's a colour and it's distressing how consumers are starting to shop via colour at the moment um, and, and unconcerned about flavour. So we were nervous about launching this product. Um, we got asked by Travel Retail for a limited edition this year and because we knew the liquid was great, we decided to, to, to produce it for Travel Retail. Um, then Green King were interested in an exclusive, so we, we put it into Green King. It started out selling our rhubarb gin, which, you know, by rate of sale, it's the number one super premium flavoured gin in the UK. So the raspberry showed fantastic promise. Um, so we decided to, to widen the distribution. It's just gone live with um, Marks and Spencer's, Waitrose and Tesco's. It's in Green King. It's going across the entree quite heavily at the moment. Um, made the same way as we make the rhubarb. So a third of the bottle is fruit juice. It's got half the elderflower power that our elderflowers gin's got in it. Um, it's predominantly raspberry, but it's also got blackberry juice in there as well. So it's, it's a celebration of the British hedgerows. Um, and you can see in the front, there's a dormouse on the front of pack. Um, is actually uh, uh, about the, the charity that we're supporting. It's the People's Trust for Endangered Species. So far this year, we've raised £10,000 uh, from money from each bottle goes to that charity. We think we might get to £25,000 donated by the end of the year, and that's going to ground-level conservation in the UK. It's looking at hedgerows, in particular the plight of the dormouse, which is now an endangered species. But the whole brand ethos is very much anchored in nature, the farm, 
biodiversity. We're up to six acres of botanicals growing on the farm now, which no one's doing this. You know, as the brand grows, we're actually becoming even more authentic. So our mission is to become self-sufficient in as many of the flavors that we use as possible, reducing our carbon footprint, um, creating biodiversity. We've just had yellow hammers return to the farm in the field where we planted the, uh, the botanicals. That's because of all the additional pollinators in that area. You know, it's little steps like this can actually make a massive difference in a world that we're getting the balance wrong at the moment. So if we can just tip that balance in small ways across our business, imagine what the big guys could do if they took the same ethos. So it's really exciting stuff. It's making a difference. And the liquid just, it's like liquidized raspberry jam and gin on the palate. It is bright, it's fresh, it's acidic. There's a bit of sweetness in there. Um, uh, great in a gin and tonic, great on its own and fantastic with lemon tonic as well. And it's not a wishy-washy pink either, it's, it's no, deep. It's deep. Dark, it it yeah. is a claret blood red liquid um, and that's because it's raspberry and blackberry juice so you get that much richer colour profile. No flavourings, no synthetics, it is as Mother Nature intended. I can't wait to try it later. Tom Warner, thank you very much for Absolute your time. pleasure. So it's actually interesting what uh, Tom Warner was saying there, Nikki. He's um, basically saying that, you know, it's time for a thinning of the herd almost in terms of the gin category. There's lots of people jumping on the craft bandwagon. We're seeing things like flavoured gin liqueurs declining in popularity. Um, but what is your perception or your take on the gin category at the moment? What's going on? So, I mean, as we all know, as much as people think that the bubble might burst soon, it doesn't seem to be happening a lot of what I'm hearing is that gin is such a diverse spirit and so much can be done with it that there's no real reason for it to decline. But saying that, looking back a few years at the vodka revolution and how flavours were played with there and, and colours and blends and whatnot, and, you know, vodka is now not as big as it used to be. That is true. Um, so we're publishing the drinks list on the 25th of November and we cover every single alcohol category in there and we see um, how vodka's performing, so you've still got the big brands that are doing well, uh, and likewise in gin, it's all pretty much positive figures. But one thing that does stick out more than anything is the rise of pink gin. You're right, it does. It's all about the pink colours I think when you look at even the likes of fruit cider the berries variants that tend to do better there pink seems to be the in thing at the moment and it captures everybody's attention because it's something that's still a little bit different to a lot of people not everybody has jumped on the gin bandwagon consumers I mean and it's something a little bit different to their standard gin drink now you're a pink gin drinker what is it that drives you towards it for me it's the color as I just mentioned but also I'm uh, maybe a typical millennial in that I like the red, pink and purple fruits rather than the more citrusy side. So yeah, I'm always going to be a pink gin drinker, I think. So something a bit simpler, a bit easier to drink, to enjoy on a, a warm summer's evening or perhaps, um, you know, any time of the year. Any time of the year is fine with me, yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you think is driving continued growth of gin in the entrée? So there's still a demographic of people who want to premiumize. You know, everyone talks constantly about premiumization within the sector and pink gin seems to have a little bit of that. It seems to be a little bit more premium than, than a standard gin. But also, as I mentioned, millennials, they, they're really into the red, pink and purple berries. And as we know, they might be drinking less, but drinking better. Therefore, the premium part taps into them and the coloured area does. 
too. Great. And that brings us nicely onto our next feature. So you and I, Nikki, made our way to deepest, darkest Kent to visit this year's Gritrich Pub Awards food winner, The Dog at Wingham, to find out what makes a winning food pub. Having a standout food offer in a competitive market is essential these days, but what does an award-winning menu do for a business? To find out, I've come to Great British Pub Awards Food Pub of the Year, The Dog at Wingham. I'm joined by the pub's owner, Mark Bridgen, who collected the award in September. Mark, how did it all start at The Dog? So we, um, <clears throat> we were looking for our first property. Um, we spent a very long day travelling around Kent. I think we looked at 19 properties and none of them fitted the bill. And we got a random phone call from a, an, an old agent in the industry who said, I can get you into the, the dog at Wingham. And we took a view, saw the place, uh, we bought the place. And yeah, today is three years down the line of the most yeah incredible journey I've been on. So lots of successes. Obviously, we're here to celebrate three years at the Dog at Wingham and also taking home the Great British Pub Awards Food Pub of the Year. Um, so you've got a lot going for you, but it's a challenging market out there. Um, how are you planning for potential changes in the future, such as Brexit, unfortunately, we've got to mention? Yeah, it it is challenging. Our um, I think our biggest single challenge is staffing. We are rural, you know, we're regional, and so we've always had local staff. So um, although we've not had European staff, with this Brexit madness that's going on, we believe that there is a real constriction in the labour market because a lot of people have gone home. You know, we're friends with all the local farmers and their resources have all gone back to Europe. So our single biggest challenge is staffing. This summer, we've positions that would normally fill in a few days to a week have taken many weeks, if not a month, to fill. So that's our single biggest challenge. We, we recognise there's probably going to be pricing changes in, in most of the things that we buy. But I don't stress about the things, you know, I have com- zero control over. But the staffing, the, that day-to-day challenge for us is is a big one. This has been recorded in, in the first few weeks of October, so we don't know what's going to happen as this airs. But one of the things that you do have downstairs, and you paid tribute to them in, in your speech a moment ago, is um, the amazing team. That you have what do you look for in a team member at the dog so we <laughs> when we're hiring you know that the first questions are very very simple you know it's trying to find some experience and it's also that they have their own transport you know that's a really big thing in our location and if they have those two things then we get them in for a trial and it's on the trial that we you know we soon find out and it is it's a passion for working hard and doing a good job and then how they deal with people and how they you know relate to the public um, you know, we can as long as they can, you know, carry plates and take orders. We can train them in our, you know, our key standards, which are, you know, giving a warm welcome. That's absolute paramount to us. Everyone that walks through the door gets a very warm welcome, and then they get a really attentive and personal level of service without intrusion. And we, you know, as long as we can mould those things into the staff. If they've got that original, that initial attitude, then then we're good to go. And um, yeah, much of the team that that have been serving us today. They've been with us for yeah, you know, more than a year. One of them over three years, and I think that's in this industry. I think that's a pretty good yardstick. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's almost unheard of in sector. I mean, sticking with staff and experience and and personality. Your head chef has an impeccable background. How is he breaking boundaries when it comes to food? So, you know, Sam is an incredible uh, young man, only 22 years old, uh, his first head chef position. We invest in them so 
our senior staff, they have a monthly budget to go to leading restaurants um, and we fit the bill so that they can get the knowledge and experience that they maybe don't, that is beyond their years. And it's by, you know, trying, experiencing new things and then finding out, you know, what they can source locally to then try and replicate, you know, some of the leading chefs in the country. So Sam, on most of his days, you know, once or twice a month on his day off, will take himself up to London to a leading restaurant to see what the real industry leaders are doing, and then what a you know a 22-year-old guy with a very young team can can aspire to and bring those ideas. So yeah, it's taking uh, local ingredients but international ideas to to develop our menu. Yeah, he's obviously very talented. I came to judge it for the food of the year, um, and the lobster ravioli and the bisque and the hick that had all the elements of a fish and chips was really clever and the gazpacho and the focaccia bread again which we've had today which is um you know outstanding it's it's amazing to see and to to think that he's only 22 but he's able to take those experiences from across the uk and bring it here what's next for the dog you've got eat you've got drink you've got sleep what how can you make it better i think the key thing is the consistency it is my that has always been our mantra is you know trying to hit high standards but keep them manageable and then consistent you know sam and rob the guys that you know run the kitchen quite rightly as young men they have huge aspirations but we are in agreement to try and keep it manageable and consistent i think the the next big thing will be as a team to get a second premises a second property and to then work out how we can split the team to maintain the standards across two whilst maintaining you know the relationships as well and I think yeah it's it's going to be maintaining a consistent product here and the excellence but then getting another another place great a second site for the dog I mean that's gonna a puppy a puppy that's <laughs> yeah. gonna spark a lot of enthusiasm I'm sure for for the fans that you've gained here and yeah I think so we um it's 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 great we have fantastic guests and so many of them ask us to open something where they live because you know we have we have guests traveling from all over the, the world but you know the the core is from across the county or the neighboring counties and yeah a lot ask us when we're heading in their direction so we um we hope to to bring it to them soon and um yeah it's, it's very very exciting it does sound very exciting mark thank you so much for your time thank you now, it's uh, quite interesting, Nikki, to hear what uh, Mark Bridgen's saying about bringing another site. And food is very much central to the operation. What about the rise of pub food? So pub food is having an interesting time at the moment. They're, pub food is having an interesting time at the moment. There's been a lot of talk recently about the resurgence of wet-led pubs. And this is obviously a big thing and a great thing within the industry. But it can mean that food can suffer a little bit but if you're an operation that's got a real strong food offer something that's a little bit different to normal but still accessible to a wide demographic then I don't think you can go too far wrong. Some people say that you know the safety and the comfort of the pub it gives people more of an excuse to experiment because you know they're not in a fancy fine dining restaurant they're not going to pay an arm and a leg for a dish. What do you think about that? How, How experimental are pubs being with food at the moment? I think they are being quite experimental and it's nice to see that there's dishes on menus that aren't your bog standard pub food dishes and I do agree I think if people are going to try something new they are going to do it in their local pub because they're not going to feel like they could be being judged and it's more of an informal environment 
I think there's always more maybe that pubs can do to experiment that little bit further. However, I understand it is a bit of a fine line to keep your locals happy and to push their boundaries a little bit. Now, we saw the struggles within casual dining last year and, and earlier on in this year. Pubs, I mean, pubs have had their fair share of struggles over the past few years anyway, but they seem to have not escaped, but they've not fared as badly as, as those branded chains. Why do you think that is? At the moment, consumers want to see something more independent, I get the impression of. They don't really want to go to chains anymore because they think they can get the same thing anywhere that they go. They want to be impressed and they want to tell their friends they had something different than what they had. And they want to be more experimental, which is where independent pubs can play more of a bit of a factor as opposed to casual dining where everybody knows the menus everyone knows the kind of style of food that you're going to get these days customers are promiscuous and they don't want to stay loyal to one brand they want to try different things all the time so i mean experiential doesn't have to be you know a game or a shuffleboard it could be very much about the food offering or the drink offering within an individual pub yeah there have been pubs that i've been to that have been doing completely different things with food whether it's bringing out a whole animal and serving it right in front of their customers there or whether it's just creating a bit of theatre around the food that that's being served or just giving a really good experience within a pub itself making sure you know the customer service is great and creating a, a whole round great experience. Pubs are a staple of the UK they're one thing to a lot of people Sometimes you don't need to mess with that. Sometimes you just need to tweak things a little bit. From winning food pubs to growing multiple operators, Peach Pub's boss, Hamish Stoddart, has plans to bolster his business with more sites in the coming years. Our editor, Ed Beddington, finds out more in this interview. So I'm, I'm with uh, Hamish Stoddart of, of Peach Pubs. We're in the uh, High Field, which is um, one of their uh, uh, many pubs, excellent gastro pub food. And um, so welcome, Hamish. Thank you. Good to have you here. Yeah. I think we're, we're just going to have a chat about uh, about where you are, what you're up to, that sort of thing. You've been um, Peach Pubs was founded 2002. Is that right? That's right. So uh, what, where are you at the moment? It's been an interesting 12, 18 months. Well, we've been uh, been going steadily actually all our all our lives. Um, so we've done roughly one a year over over all the time, and in the last couple of years. Uh, we have a, yeah, we we entered in the place where we were going to try and sell or Lee Lee my partner wanted to sell his shares, um, and we ended up nearly doing a transaction with the restaurant group, um, and uh, right now we're back uh, just concentrating on running a great a great gastropub company. Um, it would have been interesting, but it's not. Well, it didn't happen. <laughs> so now, now you're 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 empty. Now you're you're firmly in control. Where where do you see this sort of business developing and growing? Um, again, more more of the same, really. A, a, a steady, hopefully one one or two pubs a year. Um, in not in London, in in market towns or villages in the in the south. Um, up to Birmingham, uh, we've got a nice little map drawn where we'd like to be all around um, our centre, which is uh, on the M40, um, and building a great team of people who really want to work, learn, and develop together in Peach. And uh, our, we have a mission to be in the top ten of best companies to work for, and. Uh, 
over time, uh, we'd like to think we might get to being the best gastropub company in, in England. So how, how do you approach that, that people part of the operation? And how, how, do you, how do you aim to get to that, that top ten? What do you do that sets Peach apart from, from your competitors? Uh, Peach has always been extraordinary at uh, getting people to learn and work together and live together um, as a team with a culture. You know, I'm really, really proud of the culture we've created and uh, sometimes we're called a cult for good reason uh, because we all believe in the same stuff. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not difficult stuff to believe in. We believe in serving great food, um, uh, ethically produced from great, uh, great um, makers of food or gin or beer. Um, I'm drinking Purity as we speak, which is one of our favourite brewers. Um, we work with some fantastic producers. And you put that together with a great team of people wanting to learn how to serve guests in a beautiful way and enjoy themselves at the same time, you get a culture and then then what you do is you work on it and keep people learning and developing. Um, and that is, I guess, one of my biggest pleasures in life is see people develop. Um, and that's what we've created. We'll carry on doing that. Um, hopefully, when you put that together with working out using the very best practices, which is what the Sunday Times competition teaches you and I wholeheartedly recommend it to anyone who wants to have a go it teaches you about engaging people in the right way you're, you're on that list already I believe we're or, number 48 at the moment you're number 48 okay so it's uh, we've got some people to beat some strong ambition to get into the top 10 then so. yeah we're aiming at the top 10 um, it's a mixture of doing the right thing by your people um, and having your people beautifully managed and all the people learning and being listened to and uh, if you can achieve the whole piece and there's a, there's a very good survey that they do engagement survey that we've done five times now um, that helps you learn how to be better so. So the, the big challenge for, for most operators in the trade moment is recruitment um, how do you approach that? How, how do you recruit? Uh, how do you make sure you're getting the right people to help you achieve those kind of goals? Um, one of the things we did fairly early on is decided to have our own recruiter. So to help the guys in the pubs um, find the right people. So we advertise uh, on the job boards ourselves. Um, we interview to... Uh, values and uh, not on skills so we try and find the right people whether it's in um, an interview for a you know, new new part-timer doing Sunday lunch only or, or a head chef as we're constantly looking for similar values to what we've got so that they can be part of the peach team mm-hmm. um, and then you want in you know, one of our values is enthusiasm. You need to be in this trade to be hugely enthusiastic every day, and, and we look look for that. Then you're pretty much there. So we skill. can teach you. We can teach a lot of things. We can. Uh, we've got our own 
Michelin star chef in in pitch team. We've got we're we're known as one of the best trainers and developers of team. So we'll we'll teach really hard. We have lots of learning days for the people in the company to come to, from waiter waitress through to head chef or GM. Um, so it's it's all about constantly developing yourself, but doing it in a way that you can work together as a, a bigger team. You also have an employee ownership uh, system or, or model. How, how does that work? Talk me through that. Yeah, I, I would say we're shared ownership, which means uh, um, we believe that everyone in Peach should feel like it is their company. Um, and, uh, there are about 14, 15 people who are partners in Peach who own uh, equity shares or a uh, share of the profit. Um, and a lot of the, uh, all the GMs and head chefs are on uncapped uh, bonuses for a share of the profits. So hell of a lot of people in Peach, probably about 45, 50 are on share of profits. Um, and everyone shares in everything we do. We, we, we try and create a, a way of working and a place to be that is, is all about everyone being involved. So it's a, a shared ownership culture. Um, is how I describe it. Okay. So when it comes to recruitment, what would be your your sort of top advice for other operators to uh, to tackle some of the challenges there? Nice, easy question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, get organised. It's in, you can't. Uh, you have to probably be constantly recruiting. Um, don't rest on your laurels uh, when you don't have a free slot. For someone to come in today, we we we're constantly, constantly trying to recruit, and even if we can't get people in today because there isn't room or whatever, then then uh, we will aim to get them onto our list and try and try and get them to join next time we have a slot. Uh, be honest. Don't oversell it because. Uh, most of the problems I see is we've been we've overpromised in some way, and uh, we end up disappointing in the first few months, and losing losing people that we spent a lot of time on. If you're if you're straight about who you are and straight about what it's really like, then uh, I think you're more likely to retain people. Um, and don't take the first person. <laughs> Be, be pretty, pretty selective. And, um, it, it is much better to to wait another month and struggle through and get the right person than take the first person. Okay. And recruitment aside, what what other challenges would you would you say? What what keeps you awake at night at the moment? Uh, we're, we're like everyone. I think we're struggling with uh, chefs who want to come and learn how to be a great chef. Um, we're still cooking. Uh, there are literally are one or two things in Peach that are bought in, but 95% um, of stuff is cooked in our buildings by um, a brigade of five to eight people. Um, and finding the 
young talent who want to go through the ranks and start at the beginning and do do the um, hard graft of learning cooking is hard um, and we we are still actually prepping food and cooking it so you learn all the skills mm. we, we teach sauce making to um, peeling potatoes it is proper proper cooking mm. uh, so finding the chefs who want to do that is is hard we've we've always got room <laughs> 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 any any other areas that sort of uh, you, you see as uh, I mean we we in recruitment terms no I don't, uh, outside I think of recruitment in terms of uh, operationally or you know, we we've touched on things I like think it's a real it's a real challenge getting the balance we I don't know about other people in the industry but we've we've been we got um, business rated up by forty percent in the last three years. Um, I don't say the amount of money that is. No, I dare. I dare. I really dare. I, it's four hundred thousand extra pounds that we are paying for rates, um, and when you combine that with um, some minimum wage stuff, some uh, some uh, electricity bills going up, whatever, rent rent going up, it's it's a real interesting squeeze on how to stay. Um, profitable enough to grow at a reasonable pace so that, that is what keeps me awake is that is it's trying to get the balance in the business are you absorbing those costs or are you passing them on how, how are you handling that uh, our spend per head has not we we actually dropped it two years ago deliberately so we thought we were slightly too high for some of our market towns so we took a deliberate plan to drop by about two or three percent um, so no it's even more interesting than that we we have uh, we haven't passed it on in fact we've gone the other way <laughs> um, right now we are going up steadily as we've always done you know we try and keep up with inflation yeah um, but you have to find ways by doing a better better food product or beer product or gin product or cocktail or whatever it is um, so no, we're, we're generally trying to pass it on um, if we can um, one thing I always like to ask every operator uh, what, what, what do you think was your biggest mistake and, and what did you learn from it uh, we've had a few <laughs> <laughs> uh, the most obvious one, one was, was, was trying to create a gastro pub in, in a Leicester retail centre um, which sounds like uh, yeah, and is pretty much an impossibility. Um, we were lucky; we didn't we didn't lose our shirt, but we, it did cost us a year or two of effort. Um, when you basically blow three quarters of a million quid in a, in a new site, uh, what else? We've done. We pushed. Yeah, we we pushed steak through twenty quid, and I think that was one of our big moments right in the last few years we you know price points are really important to guests and if you don't have a steak uh, at the right price in a gastro pub people don't buy it um, yeah, well, 
not going into any of the others. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so, I mean, you, you said you you're, you want to you want to become sort of the, the premier gastro uh, pub group. So, outside of that, what what, what ambitions do you have for uh, for Peach? And I think it's literally that is I I would love uh, the team to continue and to say we're extraordinary we, we, we are um, but to say it even stronger um, and that means being being definitely the best employer no no cheating no fudging no bullshit just being a truly fantastic employer um, and and then uh, then I think we'll achieve our real dream which is uh, getting to be the the best gastro pub company because our service to our guests our food to our guests our beer is is and the magic we make in pubs is is the best uh, we'd like that fantastic okay thank you very much <laughs> there you go now nicky you've actually written a feature um about about hamish and peach pubs for the 25th of november issue of the magazine uh, for the ma500 spread um what makes peach different from its competitors peach pubs aims to have an accessible price point with its dishes on its menu. Not only this, but it really concentrates on giving its staff a great work-life balance to ensure that they're motivated when it comes to work. Now, um, Hamish mentioned that uh, he had plans to grow the estate. Did he outline any detail within that? So, Peach doesn't have a kind of set number in its head at the moment. It's looking for sites, but it's not got that magic number. It wants to consistently expand the business without jeopardising any of the great stuff that it's doing at the moment. Okay, and you obviously deal with a, a lot of the MA500 crowd, a lot of the independent multiple operators. What is the general consensus within their businesses at the moment in you know such turbulent conditions? Brexit, we've got an election coming up, all of the food and drink trends. What's going on, do you think? So, multiple operators are a, a savvy bunch, but obviously that they are a little concerned about what's going on in the industry and wider at the moment. With Brexit itself, one of the big things they're worrying about is staffing. The hospitality industry has a high turnover of staff anyway, and this is only going to become more challenging once Brexit happens. But I think they're now looking to other areas of how to help any recruitment issues that they're going through, So, such as looking outside of the standard recruitment places, like looking at a charity such as Only a Pavement Away that helps veterans, ex-offenders and homeless people get back into work. Looking at areas like that to, to help not only business themselves, but also to, to help out the wider community. Interesting. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But before we go, I should mention that the extended deadline for entries into the Public and Awards closes on the 22nd of November. All of the details for which, as well as breaking news and analysis about the pub trade, can be found on themorningadvertiser.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month with more on the pub trade, including an interview with the Tanner Brothers at their gastropub, the Kentish Hare. That's it for now. We'll leave you with our legal surgery. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Advertiser's Legal Surgery, where we seek to solve your legal dilemmas. I'm Ed Bennington, editor of the MA, and with me for this episode are two of our sponsor, Popston Allen's Legal Eagles, David Inzani and Sarah Taylor, who'll be answering your questions. Thanks again for joining us, folks. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ed. Okay, straight with the first question. This one's looking at an event. I'm looking to organise a series of beer festivals over the coming year. What do I need to think about and organise from a licensing perspective? Well, 
obviously a, a permission to sell beer, <laughs> but um, depends really on the scale of the event. Um, if you're looking at anything with a capacity of 499 or below, um, it's possible you could license it by way of a temporary event notice. Um, anything above above that would require a time-limited premises license, or we suggest time-limited. Um, and each of those have their nuances that you'd need to delve further into. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, with temporary event notices, it depends how many have been given for a particular premises. So if you're using your own beer garden, for example, for um, your smaller beer festival, um, you'd need to consider how many temporary event notices you had given um, for the premises and whether that also covered your beer garden. There are certain limits on the number of temporary event notices you can have per premises per year. Um, if you're looking at temporary event notices, it's important to make sure your capacity is 499 or fewer. Um, if it's bigger, as David said, you'd need to look at the possibility of a premises license. But again, the complexities of, of TENS and uh, premises licenses depend where you are in the country, which local authority um, your beer festival would be dealt with by. Um, the police force and their views because they'd be consulted on both tens and new licenses. EHO are also consulted on those. So it generally depends sort of the location um, and whether there's residents nearby and what the sort of general yeah. consensus in the area is as to how difficult it would be. And with the large scale events, there's so much to take into account, you know, including dispersal, transport links, and obviously Sarah said with police and security. Mm -hmm. um, and on, on larger scale events, some authorities will require a safety advisory group uh, process um, and extensive risk assessments to, to deal with all of these, mm. these points. Um, and there is a limit on the number of tents you can have a year, isn't there? Yes, on the, there's various limits. There's a limit on the number of days for which t you can, tents can apply to a premises, and that's t uh, 21 in any calendar year. Um, limits on the number of tens a premises can have within a calendar year and that's 15 um, limits on the number of days one ten can um, <coughs> continuously run for and that's seven days and then you need to have a 24-hour gap before you can have another ten and there are also limits on the number of tens an individual can apply for right. or, or their associates which is a, a slightly more complicated very complicated but, yeah. definition but, of, of yes. your associates. Um, the best advice we can give is is to take advice. If you're planning a potentially large uh, scale event like that, my advice would be to start early um, and to start planning early. The last thing you want to do with a festival that's got lots of logistical items involved is to leave this to a late temporary event notice, um, which is where the deadline is five working days before. Um, and you've got potentially 499 people who have bought tickets and then you get an objection from the police or from EHO um, and the temporary event notice is vetoed. It's much better to plan in advance um, and preferably get your permission in place before you start selling tickets or advertising the event. That's not always possible, um, that's the best case scenario, but also it gives you time to liaise with the authorities so that if they do have any concerns, you might be able to put an operating plan together, you can put your risk assessments together, um, you can sort of give guarantees that they may ask for. Um, also as well, if you've got a premises licence that sits 
with that premises and it, it's a beer garden for example the authorities may decide that they want to apply some of your premise license conditions to that event that's happening with the 10 um, and there's a process by which they can do that but it's important again just to make sure that you check your premise license conditions just to see if there's anything that wouldn't be workable um, for your festival event if it's a brand new premises license obviously all bets are off and, and the whole operating schedule is open for people to request mm. whatever they feel is necessary to promote the licensing objectives um, but again the advice is the same regardless of whether it's TENS or whether it's a new license is, is to make sure that you pre-consult early if it's a bigger event um, just to make sure that you know you don't waste lots of time and money on organising things that you potentially then can't have because you don't have the right authorisation for it yeah and in respect of tens, I would add that people are um, aware of certain ways of, of using multiple tens, perhaps for one event. Right. And this is something that I think several authorities um, are quite hot on now. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's complicated, and there's been recent um, amendments to the guidance to the Licensing Act that addresses this. And I mean, frankly, it's still it's still not entirely clear. So, um, if you were thinking about doing that, we'd, we'd highly recommend seeking advice, obviously, but pre-consulting, and as Sarah said, it, it's really key to do this in, in, as far in, in advance as possible. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, right. So, next question, uh, we're going to take a look at drugs. Um, well, here says, I've recently had the police in testing my premises, and they've discovered evidence of drug use in the toilets. Where does that leave me and what should I be doing? Um, now this is a difficult one and it's it's one that you often get sort of shocking letters through from police forces um, who have gone out and done inspections. It's generally the toilets that are most vulnerable um, and you can get quite high readings of various different types of drugs. Um, you would be amazed at the types of premises that I've seen really high drug readings mm -hmm. in the toilets. I'm talking sort of family yeah. premises, restaurant type premises where you wouldn't expect that there be particular issues um, with crime and disorder but obviously it's, it's one of those things that it can be quite difficult to monitor because if it happens in toilets people are behind closed doors. Um, in terms of how to tackle it and where it leaves you, obviously it's crime and disorder, it is offences are being committed on the premises, so the first issue that you've got is uh, that you are potentially in breach of your premises licence conditions, depending what is on there. Um, you're also at risk of enforcement action or a potential review, even if you don't have relevant premise license conditions to stop drug use or a drug policy um, because crimes are being committed there. So there's always the power of review or other enforcement. Um, most police forces, I find, are quite proactive and will generally work with operators to come up with a solution. Um, so particularly with toilets, I mean, it starts with design. So making sure that you design toilets so that they don't have flat surfaces, for example. Um, it's not always possible, but that's one of the things that you can do. Um, you can purchase drug wipes so that you can do your own testing. So you can see, you know, where there's particularly high readings, etc. Um, also having a policy, I think again we keep talking about staff training but it's so important because they're the people sort of on the ground and the eyes and ears, mm. um, particularly if you're a DPS and you can't be there all the time. So training your staff to spot you know, suspicious behaviour when they think people may be using drugs in the premises, dealing drugs in the premises, going to the toilet to use drugs etc. Um, and it's important to sort of train them in, in what to do. They may not necessarily confront somebody but just to make sure that they know what to do, i.e. they might want to notify the police, they may 
you have to tell another member mm-hmm. of management, for example. Yeah, having a clear policy on that, preferably written, mm-hmm. is advisable. And the message we always get from the police is that they really appreciate when premises work with them on mm-hmm. this. So, you know, it sounds silly, but uh, you know, admitting you have a problem to the police obviously brings that fear that you're then going to be under increased scrutiny but the, uh, as I said the message we always get from them is that they want to hear that you know and if you work with them it, it may perhaps in the short run put you under that scrutiny um, but ultimately your reputation with the police and, and your, your relationship with them will be very good and um, you can work together. So cooperation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, also, from a safety point of view, I mean, what I often see operators fall down on is toilet checks. Um, so not just from a safety perspective in terms of checking that all your customers are not sort of locked in the toilets at the end of an evening's trade and that you lock them in overnight. Um, but regular toilet checks can be a deterrent. So you quite often see the checklist on the back of the door. Um, if people can see that there are hourly checks being made, um, then that can sort of tip them off that if they do it in between times, um, that they won't get caught. So small things like staggering the times of your toilet checks can help. Um, that can also be a deterrent as well and just to make sure again that, that staff are vigilant. Yeah, and I think yeah, so some of these things are also brought up at pub watch meetings and, and the like or any sort of community, sorry I've given one example there, but any local licensing community meetings um, often identify recurring issues and, and, and these are addressed, police will attend mm-hmm. and, and they will identify perhaps problem individuals in the area. Or, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's quite difficult for operators as well. I think sometimes there's there's the issue of not really knowing what to do when you find drugs. So um, I know lots of, of conditions require premises to have a drug safe, for example. If you've got some sort of receptacle where they can be stored, at least then you've got a policy and a mechanism um, for being able to store it safely and for the police to come and collect it and dispose of it properly. Again, it's just good due diligence and it shows sort of cooperation with the police. Um, if you have something like that, at least then there can't be any allegations that drugs have gotten into the hands of other people or if you're a family premises the last thing you want is drugs being left in the toilet and children picking them up for example so having sort of mechanisms policies and procedures in place to dispose of them store them etc um is again good due diligence and and the police will thank you for that in the long run Mm. if you work with them okay and we've got time for one more question and uh, we'll take a look at age what are the rules around serving underage drinkers can 16 17 year olds drink in licensed premises i think we we touched on this on one of the the previous podcast um and in very specific circumstances uh, 16 and 17 year olds can drink beer cider and wine Mm -hmm. uh, with a table meal is uh, are the circumstances um however you it's not mandatory to serve them if they order. You can have a policy in your premises that we're not going to serve 16 and 17 year olds, even with you know with a table meal. Um, that is entirely up to the operator. Yeah, I mean, we talked on a previous podcast about when it's acceptable to refuse service. This may be one of those good examples where it may be the law that it's permissible um, for a 16 or 17 year old to consume certain types of alcohol with a table meal um, I know lots of clients and lots of operators just don't like the perception of, of somebody who's 16 or 17 sitting there with alcohol and consuming it even if it is with a table meal mm. um, 
also as well I think there's potential liability with confusion in terms of if you do lots of staff training on your underage policy so your challenge 21 your challenge 25 or just a general age verification policy and um, it can sometimes be quite confusing for staff if you then say well outside of this policy you may serve 16 or 17 year olds and um, with alcohol in these circumstances so I know personally that lots of operators like to keep it that they will not serve anybody who's under 18 for those reasons yeah Okay, fantastic. I'm afraid that's, that's all we've got time for for this episode. So don't forget, you can send us your legal dilemmas by emailing us on legal at morningadvertiser.co.uk. That's it for this, this session. That's all from us. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks as always, Ed.